Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Forest Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and I'm joined by Adam Grossman. We have another great show this week, and Adam had an interview with the co-chair of the O'Melveny Sports Industry Group, Chuck Baker. Chuck has been described as a very strong practitioner who is well-connected, incredibly bright, and just able to get the deal closed with tremendous experience and know-how in the sports space. Adam, can you tell us about all those attributes of Chuck? Yeah, absolutely. Chuck has represented buyers and sellers of sports franchises in the NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, MLS, and many of the European football leagues. Most recently, Chuck re- represented David Tepper, founder and president of global hedge fund Appalooza. Yeah, I know. I don't think we need to let me do that again because I can't pronounce that. Appalooza. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Chuck has represented buyers and sellers of sports franchises in the NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, MLS, and many of the European football leagues. Most recently, Chuck represented David Tepper in his acquisition of the NFL's Carolina Panthers. You know, along with that, Chuck has been featured by dozens of national publications and, and other media outlets as a thought leader in, in the fields of sports and entertainment law. And then he's also a frequent public speaker on those topics. Uh, most recently, the American lawyer named Chuck to its prestigious uh, Dealmakers of the Year list in 2019. He was also profiled in Variety's 2018 and 2017 Dealmakers Elite New York, uh, a feature spotlighting the most important players in the fields of law, finance, representation, and executive leadership. He was also recognized by Law 360 in 2015 and 2016 for his stellar M&A in sports law work and by the Global M&A Network for his work on the sale of the Atlanta Hawks NBA team, naming it the 2015 USA Deal of the Year at at its prestigious M&A Atlas Awards. In 2016, he was featured in Sports Business Journal's Power Players, Sports Lawyers, and Outside Counsel 2016 list. He is also an investor and on the advisory board of Block 6 Analytics, which is my company. You know, along with all that network as an attorney and dealmaker, Chuck also lends his time to education as, as a distinguished lecturer at NYU's Tisch Institute for Sports Management, Media, and Business. He's a member of the University of Miami School of Law's Entertainment, Arts, and Sports Law Board. And so we really appreciate Chuck lending his time and insight and hope that everyone enjoys Adam's interview with Chuck Baker. Welcome to Northwestern's Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. Today, we have Chuck Baker. Uh, Chuck is the co-chair of the O'Melveny and Myers Sports uh, Industry Practice Group. We're going to learn a lot more about Chuck. He's had a very interesting and successful career. So Chuck, first, thanks for being on the podcast. And if you can give a little bit of background to our uh, audience and to our students, that would be great. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you having me. Always more fun to speak on campus, but uh, we'll do the best I can. To, uh, always, always a treat to speak speak with your students. So, thanks. Um, so, I graduated um, from Cornell from the law school uh, back in the late '80s and had, had played some sports there, uh, but went to Wall Street to one of the big law firms, uh, hoping and, and practicing M and A. Um, I've always viewed M and A as um, a field of law that was the most business-like and really required the most generalized uh, knowledge across a broad range of, um, of subjects. Uh, when you're buying a business, uh, regardless of the type of business, 
um, you need to understand not only the financials, but all aspects of that business, its industry. And to me, it was a, a really interesting way uh, to learn you know, more deeply about business. Uh, as a baby lawyer, I, I bought and sold everything from, you know, one of my most exciting early deals was the hostile takeover of RJ Nabisco, um, you know, which became a movie and a book. Yeah. Um, really, really a, a fun time. Uh, draining, exhausting, but uh, really exciting. And um, spent most of my early career at a firm called Latham & Watkins, uh, where we represented KKR and Drexel and a bunch of the other hostile takeover groups. Moved to Paul Hastings as a partner, another firm that had grown up in LA, but was a global firm, and continued to buy and sell most every type of company uh, under the sun with no, no real specialization. But I will say the advantage of that was developing uh, my skills generally as a lawyer, uh, as well as understanding a variety of different industries, how different economic impacts would affect different types of businesses, some strong businesses, some less strong businesses, bought a few businesses out of bankruptcy uh, during each of the two recessions. Um, but really, really an interesting time. And had the opportunity, I would say 12 years, 10, 12 years back uh, to do a, another acquisition for a client of the firm and the, the target was the Miami Dolphins. And so uh, yeah, hopped right on that one. It was sort of in my my world, sort of marrying a, a passion with my profession, uh, and help Mr. Ross, uh, who apparently has a school just down the road from you guys, um, by the Miami Dolphins, and it was it was exhilarating. It was uh, Wayne Heisinger, uh, the founder of Blockbuster and Waste Management, owned the team at the time, and um, you know you had two titans. Uh, Steve Ross in the, in the real estate business and, and Heisinger uh, in several different businesses, sort of matching wits, uh, matching wallets, and, and trying to buy the team. And um, you know, it was interesting. It was like many, many uh, mergers or acquisitions that I had done before, um, but obviously uh, a different type of business, uh, one driven by a different pool of revenues, which we'll talk about uh, a bit later on. One that was, like many industries, uh, reliant on data and various metrics to measure, you know, among other things, ticket sales and sponsorship and media uh, viewing. Um, a lot of the things that Block 6 focuses on. And, um, but really a, an enthralling deal. It broke up at least once over the Miami Dolphins, or Mr. Heising, I would say, his airplane. And, um, how Mr. Ross, as the new owner, was going to get back and forth from Palm Beach uh, to the stadium in Miami. And uh, that became the subject of, um, uh, it was actually a helicopter, uh, <laughs> some discussion. And um, uh, I won't share exactly how that came out, but uh, you know, use of company helicopter was an issue I hadn't uh, come across before. And um, really, really a great deal. And it was just around that time that, um, folks in private equity and other finance folks were starting to look at the sports industry and sports teams specifically as you know perhaps an opportunistic investment not just a trophy asset because obviously there's great pride in owning a team it's 
very few businesses where uh, you know you read about your company every single day on the front page, maybe the front page of the sports section, but every single day you hear from your shareholders there. They're, they're typically an adamant, boisterous bunch. Those are your fans. Uh, it's a community treasure uh, in almost any city, no matter no matter how large. Um, and so uh, a, the private equity guys and, and others were, were looking at the businesses and believed that if they could bring some of their um, keen financial management skills to bear on some of these businesses that um, the type of economic system that we have, particularly in the U.S., where there was a limited supply of teams. So if we have, you know, four major leagues and certainly now uh, counting MLS, five major leagues with an average of 30 teams in each makes 150 teams that are available at any given time. And frankly, very few are available because they don't often trade out of, you know, families. Um, and so you had a, a limited supply. We have collective bargaining, which, you know, kept um, in, the, in the owner's minds, at least, kept wages um, high or otherwise generally stable and revenue sharing. So whether you're a small market team uh, or, a, or a large market team, uh, you know, revenues were collectively shared. Um, and so it was a pretty stable economic system. And I, you know, frankly, um, I, I got lucky because I decided right around that time that um, I had enjoyed doing the deal so much that I could conceivably build a practice around buying and selling and financing uh, businesses in the in the sports media and entertainment ecosystem, which, uh, in my view, in many people's view, is really one ecosystem. I think sports and entertainment and the media are totally codependent on each other. Without um, without as we're seeing now during COVID, without um, the media uh, supporting the uh, revenue streams and therefore the values of the teams, you know, there, there is no real strong ecosystem. And obviously sports is such a, um, a in-demand um, content play for the network. So really mutually uh, dependent. And I switched law firms at the time. I, I went over to a large global firm called DLA Piper to co-chair their sports media and entertainment practice. And again, hit the market at just the right time, made the move at the right time. 2010, um, and um, folks were starting to invest. There was the Sixers deal, and the Bucks deal, and the Devils deal, and um, the Clippers deal, and the Dodgers deal, and values kept coming up, and uh, we were fortunate enough to be on the front end, uh, most typically on the buy side, sometimes on the sell side. We sold the Atlanta Thrashers up to Winnipeg. That was the first NHL move uh, in a long, long time. We sold the Atlanta Hawks, and business was booming and really felt very fortunate. Um, and then about um, beginning of 2017, opted to uh, make one more move, uh, hopefully the last, uh, to co-chair O'Melveny's uh, sports practice. And O'Melveny's another global law firm, uh, has been in LA and in Hollywood for 100 years, sort of grew up in the shadows of the studios, big, big media and entertainment practice. And uh, given you know what I shared earlier about sports and entertainment being one ecosystem, uh, rebuilding a sports practice there uh, was very exciting. And it's been, uh, it's been a great ride and a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of things came up in your intro that we want to cover during the uh, podcast, and we'll try to get through everything. But the first thing is, 
know, one of the, you know, you've talked about the core area of your expertise is these um, equity debt transactions, right? At, at team levels and franchise levels. Can you just talk about like a normal process of what you do, what owners are doing, what, you know, either the buy side or sell side, just what is like the normal process? If you want to say there is a normal process, or if you can't say like, what, what would be the, like, just overall process of how these transactions work? So Adam, it's, it's really interesting in this business because um, first of all, a lot of the deals that are done are sort of one-off proprietary deals. And by that, I mean that rather than having, uh, remember these are privately held companies, they're not public. And so that rather than having a full, let's call it auction of the asset, the team, uh, oftentimes it's just uh, word of mouth in terms of um, the transactions and there is no formal sales process. Um, I mean, think about how many teams you hear uh, trading hands that you didn't even know were you know up for sale because many of them sort of trade by appointment. And what's so interesting about that is as you know as an attorney in the space, uh, and thankfully there aren't too many of us, um, you know one of the things that you know in our, our toolbox, our, our, our knowledge is not just the, the legalities of how to do deals, but it's knowing the market. So if, you know, a buyer, prospective buyer came to me, obviously somebody with significant net worth and liquidity um, and said, you know, I've always, you know, wanted to own an NBA team. I want a team on the East Coast so that I can get there from New York and get back home, uh, watch a game and come back. My kids want to join me. Um, you know, what's out there? And as a lawyer in the space, um, it's, it, I feel it's endemic on me and I make a point of kind of knowing um, what may be available, price range, geography, control positions, minority positions. So a lot of the deals are actually done like that. And it takes, you know, being in the industry and establishing strong relationships with the bankers in the space, other owners, the leagues themselves, frankly, the press. Um, you know, I have good relationships with people at the big sports media outlets, including the Bloombergs and Forbes and Fortunes. Um, and, you know, we frankly trade information. I, I learn as much kind of behind the scenes uh, from the press in this space, uh, frankly, hopefully a lot more than they learn from me. And so you just have sources of information and it's an it's a information-based business. Um, other deals, um, more like the Carolina Panthers, you know, are like a full-blown investment banker auction process. So that deal, uh, if we have a few minutes, is, is far more like a typical sale of any other you know, privately held business where an investment bank is hired, a book is put together, and the bank working together with the team's ownership and management determines who an appropriate list of buyers may be to approach. And so in that process, as many of you probably recall, the prior owner had been um, alleged to have engaged in um, behavior that uh, the league wasn't supportive of. It wasn't quite as inflammatory as the Clippers situation, but it was inflammatory enough that it became clear. I remember actually watching, uh, I was watching a playoff game 
uh, an NFL playoff game on ESPN, and the scroll, the ticker tape across the bottom said, you know, Panthers owner Mr. Richardson um, forced uh, to sell Carolina Panthers. And, um, you know, crazily enough, I had called the lawyer whom I know represents Mr. Richardson, probably, and who's a friend at another firm, uh, six months before saying, hey, by the way, you know, if Mr. Richardson would entertain an offer for the team, um, I have a client who can afford it and would be eager to discuss it kind of behind the scenes. And that went nowhere. But crazy enough, I read the headlines scrolling across the playoff game and it's available again. I picked up the phone, called him at home. And he said, yeah, I just saw that. He said, I think we're actually going to, you know, conduct a full process going to give your client's name to the investment bank we've hired. Turned out to be a bank called Allen and Company, which is very active in the sports space, media and entertainment as well. And so we we're off to the races. What did that mean? It meant, um, you know, obviously I reached my client again. He had seen it and wanted to get in the process. He was, um, you know, like many buyers, sorry that it was a process as opposed to a one-off deal when you have an auction process and you bring out other prospective buyers and the reason you often do this is because it drives the price higher um, you know the advantage that we had six months earlier was the team wasn't for sale it's the best time to buy the asset uh, rather than inviting competition and so long story short we got a we signed a, a confidentiality agreement with the investment bank and we were given a, uh, a memo describing the business and all of its various assets, liabilities, uh, opportunities, its financial statement, um, background information on the NFL itself, the collective bargaining agreement, revenue sharing, two things I mentioned before. And uh, our client sat down uh, and was also provided access to a data room. Uh, due diligence is not done uh, for the most part live anymore other than site visits and management meetings and looking at the stadium uh, most of it is done just by um, virtual data rooms uh, and so the the client uh, different hedge fund owner not the one who ultimately bought the team began their analysis pricing and we went through uh, rounds of bidding and not unlike another business we were asked to submit a non-binding offer uh, explaining you know, how we were going to pay for it, where we would get our financing, uh, how much we would pay, of course, what any material conditions were uh, that we needed to be satisfied before closing, and how long it would take us. The bank probably received 10 of those. Um, I suspect weeded out about half of them and cut the field down to about five. Right around that time, uh, I got a phone call from uh, one of David Tepper's, uh, his president actually, asking me if I was available uh, or could represent him in connection with the deal. Well, as I'd mentioned, I had a client in the deal already, and um, yeah, I didn't want to say no because he was, you know, being speculated as a highly likely buyer, and so I kind of, <laughs> you know, with trepidation called my other hedge fund client uh, and asked if, because uh, I got the sense he wasn't he, totally serious about the deal, particularly given that the price was going up with all the other bidders, and sort of gingerly asked if he'd be okay if I sort of switched sides and uh, represented another bidder. Uh, and he sort of <laughs> he sort of laughed and he said, no, you're my guy. And 
what I do here may impact, you know, any attempt to buy a different team and in a different league. And uh, anyhow, he sort of chuckled and said, look, the right buyer for this is, is Dave Tepper. You know, look, if you call me, told me Dave Tepper called you and said, can you represent me? I'd say go for it, you know, because he's the right guy to buy this. And <laughs> I started laughing. He said, oh, come on. And anyhow, <laughs> I think he regretted saying that, but he was a, a man of his word still yeah. is. So we're off and running with uh, Mr. Tepper and um, – Really, I could I could spend you know, an hour uh, or several hours describing yeah. that deal itself. But uh, long story short, uh, we were the winning bidder. We had not offered the highest price, uh, which is important to know. Um, yeah. I think the NFL and ownership felt good about the fact that we could write a check for the asset. We could do it very quickly. We did not need any financing. Our money was good. Our background checks came out great. Remember, each of these leagues cares very, very much about whom their owners are. It's a private club. Uh, they want to you know, make sure, A, you're, you're solvent and financially able, and B, that you know, there aren't things that come up in background checks that would uh, you know, cause the league to, to look askance um, in, in typical types of things, which, by the way, at the time included gambling uh, or any interest in gaming. Um, and, and, you know, just one, one quick vignette from the deal is we were close to getting closer to signing a purchase agreement. Uh, two bidders were actually in purchase agreement negotiations with the seller's council and their investment bank. We knew we were one, of, we're obviously one of the two. We knew who the other one was. And it was the Tuesday that the Supreme Court uh, or the Monday, uh, ruled on the on gaming, on sports betting, and the PAPSA uh, case. And they, you know, basically invalidated a state's restriction on gaming. And Mark Cuban came out that day and said, amazing, amazing job, Supreme Court. The, double, the valuation of the Mavericks just doubled. You've yeah. just doubled the price of all teams. And I got a call from Mr. Tepper, and he said, get that purchase agreement signed before this deal <laughs> runs away from us. And so, sure enough, we were sent over to the seller's law firm, uh, which is only a block or two away in Times Square, and spent the next two and a half days there uh, without sleep, um, you know, wrestling every issue to the ground, and got the purchase agreement signed. So, uh, while gaming was viewed as a, uh, as a no-can-do sort of pre-Supreme Court decision, it was uh, looked at with more open eyes, not that the leagues aren't still deeply concerned about what your interests may be and other companies you may have interests in, um, but it became uh, less of an issue and um, got the deal signed and closed within about 60 days, which is a sort of record speed um, for a team deal, particularly a team deal of that size. It was the largest deal, uh, still the largest deal in NFL history. And um, as we've seen since then, we've helped Mr. Tepper um, secure an MLS expansion team, uh, which will take the field in 21 for Charlotte and um, build new facilities and new headquarters, uh, maybe building a new soccer stadium and uh, off to the races and uh, eager for the teams to return to the field. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, that actually leads to the next question, which is, and you've kind of mentioned this already, you've been, you came in, you know, 10, 12 years ago where the value of these sports franchises and organizations have grown significantly since you've been representing um, clients. Can you just 
talk about what the evolution. One of the reasons we teach uh, asset valuation in the course is because the value of sports franchises has changed so dramatically, particularly in the past ten to twelve years. Can you talk about what it's been like to be to see those increases in valuations? You know, what are the factors that you're looking at when you're determining if you know what these valuations should be? And working with your banks and working with your clients on that. And then, you know, we, we definitely want to talk about the COVID element too, because obviously you've you've been, you know, you were just on uh, or recently on CNBC talking about the, you know, um, liquidity issues and potentially limited partners, and we want to talk about the app, that part first. But uh, we will talk about that part. But first, just kind of the change and the evolution of the valuation of sports franchises and how they've grown in value, particularly in the past ten and twelve years, up until um, what's happened recently with COVID. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. It's a great question. Um, and you're dead on. I mean, the compound annual growth rate, CAGR, of sports teams across the U.S. leagues, frankly, in Europe and much of the rest of the world as well, uh, is significantly higher than the Dow, NASDAQ, S&P. In fact, I think over the last 5, 10, and 20 years, uh, other than um, the call them the, the three Cs, classic cars and cannabis, um, probably the fastest growing or fastest appreciating asset class uh, as an investment um, out there. And so um, wh why is that? Um, several reasons, one or two of which I mentioned earlier. One is it's a closed system. There is limited supply. Um, you know, again, five major leagues in the U.S., many other leagues as well, but of the five biggest leagues, there's about 150 teams. They don't trade often. There are one or two or three control deals a year. And so um, that, that in itself supports price. We have collective bargaining agreement, which is both helpful to the players because it enables them, like any, any collective bargaining situation, to uh, negotiate uh, as a group, as a union. Uh, at the same time, um, it, you know, from the owner's perspective, it fixes the you know, the wage pool and so regardless of the size of these contracts individually um collectively um there is a price limitation and so you have you know a a suppressed wage as much money as lebron james makes without collective bargaining uh he frankly make a lot more um because there's a cap um it varies from league to league and baseball doesn't have one but the other leagues actually have a cap uh, per team on how much you can pay in salary. Um, and so that keeps wages somewhat suppressed um, and you have revenue sharing. And so whether you're, you know, the Chicago, the Chicago Bulls or, you know, the Phoenix Suns, very, very different markets, very, very different uh, DMAs in each of those two cities, um, but you're sharing the collective NBA pool. And um, what, what, contributes most to that pool in each of um, the five U.S. leagues, and it varies by league, but certainly in the NFL and the NBA, is their national media deals. The national media deals are far and away the biggest revenue drivers of those teams. And so because they share equally in the national deal, again, whether you're Chicago or Phoenix uh, or San Antonio, um, you're getting your pro rata portion. And so automatically from the get-go without any sort of other, you know, smart business, uh, um, you know, measurements, uh, you've, got, you've got revenues from the media deals. 
Um, the other sources of revenue are ticketing, uh, which is obviously going to be somewhat locally driven. Sponsorship, which um, you know everybody is trying to measure properly, not just eyeballs on TV, but digital eyeballs. I know uh, Block Six is focused on that and working on both the team side, the league side, and the sponsor side uh, to try to help people properly value that uh, and strike the best deals in that space. Um, food and beverage, which obviously comes with attendance. Um, and those are in merchandising. And so those are the big categories of revenue drivers. Ancillary revenue is the stadium. And the stadium is such a valuable asset because most of your stadium revenues you don't share with other teams. So personal seat licenses and things of that sort are terrific money makers for the teams. And it's why so many owners have been focused on building new stadiums and new, arena, new arenas, mixed use developments. That's all kept locally by the team and not shared with the others. And so between the closed system, collective bargaining, revenue sharing, uh, and the ever-increasing value of these sports rights, the values just keep driving higher, higher, and higher. And it makes, you know, it, it's terrific, but it's also a problem because it, it narrows the pool of buyers that are capable of, you know, buying these assets. And so, um, you know, from the league's perspective, while the most important thing they can be doing is driving the value of franchises higher, they also need to assure that there's still enough of a pool of, of people out there um, that can, they can afford these assets. Yeah, and then can you talk a little bit about, um, and I know you and I have talked about this before, but the impact of the current uh, dynamic, particularly COVID-19, on these types of transactions. Um, our audience may not be as familiar with controlling and, and limited partners. So just first, you know, creating a definition of what a controlling versus limited partner is, and then second, kind of what's been the impact of COVID-19 um, on these types of transactions, if any. You know, it still seems like there are um, obviously people and, and different parties and entities looking to make these types of transactions. So, you know, just wanted to see what, you know, get your impact and take on the market, um, given everything going on with COVID-19. Okay, it's a great question and certainly certainly timely. COVID has had a dramatic impact on a lot of industries, most particularly um, you know, the live entertainment industry. Uh, it's as hard hit, frankly, as the restaurant industry, as the travel industry. Um, you know, sports, sports teams, sports leagues are dependent on having people in the seats. People in the seats buying tickets, spending money on food, beverage, and merchandise. Um, and being played. So uh, when they're not being played, it's a dramatic, dramatic revenue hit to these teams and these leagues. Um, so we've been in the COVID crisis for about 10 weeks or so now, and since the NBA, you know, called a timeout on the season, and um, each of the leagues has been impacted slightly differently. Uh, the NBA, because they had most of their season completed, wasn't hit as badly as um, some of the other leagues, but they still haven't had a chance to, you know, have their playoffs and, um, you know, still wrestling with how they're going to finish the season. That's a decision that's expected uh, within the next few days. And we'll see maybe when you watch this, uh, there will have been a season by then. Um, NFL, just good luck timing. Their season doesn't commence uh, until, you know, late August. And so, at the moment, they're still speaking about uh, starting off on time with fanless, uh, fanless stadiums. Um, we'll see. MLS has been hurt badly. Their season was just getting underway uh, when this hit. 
uh, Major League Baseball uh, hit hurt badly. Um, and, and the reason that those two leagues are, are hurt as badly or so badly is, um, is twofold. It's not just the timing. It's also how dependent both of those sports are on live gate as opposed to their media deals. So as big as MLB's media deal is with, you know, 162 game seasons, they are um, highly dependent on the number of people coming through the turnstiles. So that's a major, major revenue hit to baseball. Same with MLS, smallest media deal of the five leagues up for renegotiation in the next two years. Most people expect it'll be a significant, you know, several fold increase on their next deal. Um, given the growth of the league, the popularity of the league. Um, but for now, um, the gate is a much, much higher percentage of revenue. So they've been hurt badly. In terms of transactions, um, I don't think the sports world is too different than a lot of uh, other industries. Um, people are on pause right now. There are a lot of opportunistic buyers out there that still have liquidity that are looking for opportunities. But I think the situation now is that the sellers or the owners of teams, whether they're the controlling owner of Steve Ballmer or whether they just have a, a minority you know, piece of a team, um, are um, not quite ready and certainly don't want to sell in such a down market. Um, and so while people are looking, while people are being opportunistic, not a lot is transacting right now. I have two live NBA deals. One is a minority piece that was written about uh, representing a buyer for about 35% or so of the San Antonio Spurs. The other one is one of these transactions that I mentioned that are you know not for sale, but um, is private discussion and we're kind of deep in discussions and the way that we're frankly pricing both deals is we're proposing a purchase price a valuation based on the performance of the team and the league um, historically um, with an asterisk for COVID and you know an expectation right up front no, nothing nothing um, you know slippery about it that we're going to reprice or give another price as soon as we get more guidance from the league and the team on the impact of COVID on their revenues. And so as I shared, you know, the NBA has a, a terrific uh, series of media deals that provide, you know, a substantial amount of revenues. They are still dependent on the gate and live events as well. Um, and there's, you know, there's been discussed what proportion of their revenues uh, that entails. Adam said recently is about 40%, I think. What do you say, 60%, one or the other, higher than I thought. Um, but in any event, we, we will reprice. And so, um, you know, people are being cautious. They're looking. I think what's going to happen is once sports resume, uh, and they will resume uh, in whatever form, um, some of the current owners, whether they own a controlling interest or just a 2% piece, a 10% piece of a team, are going to look to sell. Some of them, frankly, may need to sell. So many uh, owners' native, native businesses have been hurt so badly. Like anybody who's significant in the entertainment industry, the cruise industry, the travel industry, um, the um, restaurant industry, um, that they may, frankly, be um, forced to sell, if you will. They may need liquidity. Um, and so I think whether it's Six months from now or first quarter of uh, 21, I think the M&A activity in this space is going to pick up dramatically. 
Yeah, and uh, our last question as we're running towards the end of the time here is, um, and this is a question we ask all of our guests is, you know, obviously we're focused on a student audience and um, a lot of students who are trying to enter into the sports industry. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are looking to enter into the sports industry in terms of, you know, um, jobs, to, potentially jobs to look for, but how, you know, your experience has led to your success, any lessons, any um, words of wisdom for students as they're looking to try to um, embark or enhance their career in the industry? Absolutely. So um, when I speak to folks at, at business schools and master's programs, um, my advice, frankly, hasn't changed, which is, um, you know, pursue your passion, whether it's finance, um, accounting, marketing, uh, whatever it is, get good at it. And you don't need to be in the sports industry immediately. Just learn a skill set, something that you enjoy doing. Um, the entry-level jobs in sports are difficult to come by. They're not always the most glamorous jobs, but learn a skill. In my case, I learned, you know, I was a lawyer. Obviously, I am a lawyer, but I learned M&A. I learned how to buy and sell businesses. Had nothing to do with sports until, you know, 20 years into my career. Uh, but I learned. I learned how to do deals, uh, how to deal with clients, how to deal with colleagues, how to deal with supervisors. And those are the most important early skills. So develop your craft, hopefully something you enjoy doing. Um, you know, be hardworking. I don't like the word networking at all. I would say be genuine. Um, speak to folks, take an interest in people. You just never know. I mean, these are kind of basic life lessons. I'm not a, I'm not a networker, but I, I do take interest in people uh, and I like being around people. And it's, it's um, you know, I think it's an asset in business, um, you know, without question. I think times are more challenging now. I would encourage people, particularly given, you know, the recession, if you will, that we have now in COVID and will have, I suspect for some time coming out of COVID to be more aggressive and more open-minded about where you start. I would strongly encourage you to consider industries other than the sports industry, recognizing that once you develop a skill and a bunch of relationships, you can come back into the sports industry. I think the entry points for people who have developed um, and have had some career experience are so much better in sports, media, and entertainment uh, than they are um, just going straight into the industry. And so I'd encourage people to, you know, be open-minded, enthusiastic, continue to be genuine and meet people uh, and develop a skill. That's great advice. Uh, great place to leave it. Great insights from Chuck Baker. Chuck, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the podcast. And really appreciate uh, all the information and all the uh, insights that you brought to everybody and brought to our audience and brought to the students. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Always a treat. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.